episode 380 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're about to express views that are not shared by our institutions, our clients, our family, our friends, uh, really even our pets. Joining me today on the News Roundup, David Chris, formerly of the Justice Department, now a founder of Culper Partners. Paul Rosenzweig, formerly of the Department of Homeland Security, now a founder of Red Branch Consulting. Michael Ellis, formerly with the White House and Congress, and the founder of Nautilus PLLC. And Meredith Rathbone, who is a Steptoe partner uh, in charge of our international trade and regulatory practice. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host and chief provocateur for today's program. Why don't we jump right in? I, Michael, the this is a good news story uh, and kind of a surprise because the, the government was getting a bad press for its inability to do anything about ransomware. And now suddenly it looks as though they have done serious damage to one of the worst ransomware gangs, Revil. That's right, Stuart. Definitely good news. And for folks who might not have seen the ransomware group, again, Revil or R-Evil, the ones that uh, developed the software from the Colonial Pipeline attack and the ones who were responsible for the JBS meatpacking company attack, they went dark last week. If you read the press reports, they went down in July and it appears that they restarted their operations from their encrypted backups. What they didn't know, according to their press reporting, is the backups were also compromised from whatever happened in July. So when they started things back up, they were still vulnerable. Now, press reports say that the FBI, Cyber Command, the Secret Service, and a foreign partner were responsible for this operation. But you know, there's been no official U.S. government statement of responsibility for this. And I think while this is good news, we need a lot more of it. And the U.S. government should actually say that, that it was behind this, if, if indeed it, it was. I mean, we have no problem talking to the press and you know, about, about our cyber policies from time to time. We shouldn't let the Russians off the hook by saying it's an open question whether or not they can control these these actors. We should hit them and let people know that if they do something similar, we'll hit them again. Yeah, I was struck by the fact that no one is actually saying who they think the partner is, or at least we haven't seen that in any mainstream press. My favorite candidate is the Dutch, who definitely punch above their white weight, but it could easily have been GCHQ in the UK or somebody else. What's interesting here to me is the FBI took a lot of heat for not having released the Kaseya key for several weeks because they said they were working on an operation to sting the ransomware gang. I assume this is related and that, that this is the FBI getting the last laugh after having been abused for putting its sting higher than handing out the key to people who wanted to decrypt their files. Yeah, that may be right. And as far as the foreign partner is concerned, there may be reasons of their own why they don't want their uh, involvement publicized to the world. But we also had last week a, a deputy assistant secretary in the Biden administration you know, saying it was unclear whether Russia was actually able to control these ransomware actors or who who was really behind it. I, I think that's unhelpful. I think the U.S. government should should adopt more or less a strict liability policy for these kinds of attacks. If you don't cooperate with our law enforcement, if you don't extra hackers when we request it, then we're gonna hold you accountable through offensive cyber operations. So that was Mika Yoyang, who has been on the, the podcast uh, herself before she was in government saying that. I wondered what, if that wasn't meant to say, to, to lay the groundwork for it, the, the same basis that we invaded Afghanistan. You're unable or unwilling to stop these ransomware actors, so we'll have to do it ourselves. 
Yeah, I, I think her comments were actually a one, one step off from that. Un, unwilling or unable is a great rationale under international law for taking the self-defense action. But when you say it's an open question whether Russia can control these, you're not saying that they're unable to. You're saying that maybe they can, maybe they couldn't. I, I, I think they could be a little sterner here. Yeah, that was a little odd, I, I have to say. Although maybe she just thinks uh, it's quite possible that the Putin government can't actually get these guys. Uh, yeah, I, I was going to say, I mean, much as I would love to do that, why... why? I, there's a virtue in speaking the truth. I, mean, I tend to think that Putin can control them. I tend to think that's that should be our operational assumption. But I also tend to think that it, that's not a surety that we should base uh, 100% of our policy on. Indeed, quite to the contrary, we know, uh, at least of a certainty, that it, at least some of the groups in Russia have acted without Putin's let, and then and then he comes after them afterwards. The Kolonu pipeline, for example, went too far, and the biggest, the best suggestions I've heard is that that angered him uh, because it was beyond his control and beyond their remit. So, I well, if 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 they really are outside of Russian control, and they then let's see their law enforcement start cooperating with DOJ and bring these folks to account, right? I, if yeah, if they well, really aren't turning a blind eye to it, that's but that's a different question altogether, right? Yeah, Russia's. Russia's cooperation with the United States is not going to happen, and it's not going to happen in China or the Ukraine or Saudi Arabia or any of the countries. Yeah, we, we can't just demand that, folks, in that way. I mean, whether or not they do control them is a factual question. Whether or not they cooperate with us in attempting to suppress them is a different factual question. So one problems. thing that Russia has demonstrated that it can do, and it's, it was impressive, is that it's really built up its ability to censor the internet, which for years was the one place you could actually get uh, a lot of Western-oriented news. And now Russia has begun really uh, cutting back on things like Twitter distribution in Russia using a kind of, I would call it a knockoff version of uh, China's Great Firewall. David? Yeah, it's a super interesting story. I think this has been going on for quite a while, but it's starting to get a lot of attention, including in the New York Times. And to put it in context, I think you have to consider at least three different sets of actors. You've got Putin on the one hand, you've got the tech companies, uh, the Western tech companies, particularly on the other. And then, of course, you've got the looming specter of U.S. domestic politics. And yeah, I should say, as to these three, I'm definitely not a Russia expert, although I do listen to them. I'm pretty good on the second one because of my work for tech companies, although that might be a source of bias as well, and I'm okay on at least that slice of the third. But basically, U.S. companies are providing some of the main platforms for free speech, including political speech in Russia, and including political speech by those opposed to the current regime, maybe most notably like followers of uh, Mr. Navalny. And for that reason, obviously, Putin doesn't like them. He'd like to shut them down. He'd like to restrict them. And he's been on a campaign to do that, but he doesn't appear to have, apropos of the last interchange between Paul and Michael, absolute and unlimited power even within Russia. And he may be risking civil unrest or other kinds of blowback if he moves too abruptly. So he's been implementing, I think, over time, this strategy of incremental encroachment cloaked in rule of law phrasing, at least, uh, even if it isn't really rule of law as we would like to recognize it. And U.S. companies for their part, then have their own sets of interests, including fiduciary duties to make money and 
They have to balance the costs of capitulation at the margins and increasingly against the benefits of, say, remaining in the market. I think Putin would like them to withdraw. And one of the factors that U.S. companies have to consider in that balance is U.S. domestic politics in which they may be praised or condemned, rewarded or punished for what they do or don't do or allow to have happen to them in Russia, China, and other places. And so I think just that triangle to me is a good frame for understanding these events. What you don't see in my view right now is a very strong plank of US foreign policy sort of getting in there and occupying the space, either supporting the companies or giving clear direction. And so in a way, there's just an outsourcing going on as they try to figure out what to do. Do you think this is about U.S. companies cooperating because they don't have the U.S. government doesn't have their back? I thought what was really going on here is that the, the U.S. companies wanted to be as pro-free speech as they could get away with. And mm-hmm. Putin was looking for hostages that he could take. He started taking hostages by making them have employees there. And recently yep. he's begun to make it clear he has the ability to throttle signals coming into China in a way he didn't have uh, a year ago. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't disagree with that, but I think the best way yeah, to sorry, see that is yes, in you're that right. in, frame, coming into Russia. <laughs> right. Uh, coming into Russia, yes. But I mean, I think that particular development that you're talking about, I do think Putin has been on a campaign to increase his capacity to control free speech and, and other speech in Russia. And I think the Western platforms are a bit of a thorn in his side. And so he enacts a whole series of laws, some of which get used, some of which are just put on the shelf and under the break glass in case of emergency bucket or something. And he uses them instrumentally and inside of this larger uh, frame of the main actors. I don't necessarily, I think the US companies would like to provide as much free speech as possible, but they also don't want their folks taken hostage. They don't want their assets seized and they want to stay in the market. And so it's just a, I think it's a more complicated three-way dance than maybe the, the sort of bumper sticker version of it. And I think you have to understand it in that frame. But within that frame, what you said, I think is to me at least basically correct. Yeah, I do not. I do not think this is a three-way dance because okay. I think the U.S. is a wallflower now, and it's not because it doesn't want to uh, do something. It's just run out of options. Uh, it's not going to okay. have any impact. And let, let's remember the last time the U.S. took a really strong stand about the importance of letting Twitter and all those other products get into the uh, Russia so they could shake things up and change the regime and make Putin sweat over his election. It succeeded in making him sweat. And he came back and said, yeah, I remember Hillary when you did that to me and I'm going to make you sweat. And he <laughs> turned out to be a lot better at it than uh, Hillary was uh, or well, Twitter. Fair, I mean, that <laughs> I, I don't have any quarrel with that. It, it may be that there isn't a good way for the U.S. government to get in and support uh, free speech in Russia. I mean, we are a long way from the days in which shortwave uh, radio broadcasts uh, spread freedom or propaganda, depending on your perspective, across national boundaries. So it's very hard. Uh, and it may be that uh, doing nothing is the best option. But I think the absence of organized U.S. foreign policy efforts here is at least a notable element yep. of the current situation. We won't explore this here, but sometime we should do it. Uh, I am increasingly of the view that for commercial reasons, the big tech companies have sold us 
a line of BS about an open, global, standards-based internet that existed in their aspirations in 1998 and is never going to show up. And the U.S. government's efforts to keep it alive are preventing it from doing things like saying, say, why do we let the Russians into the Internet anyway? They're mostly trouble. If they're stopping our stuff from getting across their border, maybe we should stop their stuff from getting across their border coming in our direction. Fight fire with fire, huh? Yes. I, if they're cut off, once they've built the wall, we might as well get some that advantage on it. We might as well you, play you know, handball Stuart, off. You, you ought to get Mark Sock. He, he has a nifty proposal to modify the border gateway protocols to basically artificially isolate Russian digital content as punishment for solar winds or ransomware or pick your choice. And Perfect. Yo, this is Marcus Sachs, right? Yeah, Mark, Mark Sachs. Yeah, he, yep. he's got okay, it all. Okay, Mark, if, if you're listening, uh, you have an invitation <laughs> to <down>. appear. <laughs> I, I, it, it really is. It really is actually, I mean, I, I don't want to drift us off of your agenda too much, but it really is pretty much a wonderfully interesting technological proposal that is essentially uh, game theory optimal, tit for tat. Right. Yeah. So I just want to put in a plug for the triangle theory, because there you can imagine Putin and the U.S. administration sort of coming to an agreement that we should indeed balkanize the Internet. I don't know whether Putin would make that trade, but I think he would. And then you'd have the tech companies saying, no, no, no. So yeah, exactly. I still think you got to look at these three actors and maybe some other ones, too. Well, we're going to come that, back to that, that because sense. that's Ian Brenner's theory. And I know you want to talk yeah. about that. So let, let me uh, first deal with another big international problem, which is export controls on intrusion software. Meredith, this question really requires a, a disclosure that Steptoe has a lot of clients who do cybersecurity work and have been very interested in the rule that the Commerce Department has been working on for years about export controls on intrusion software, malware, and the like. And the reason it's been working on it for years and the reason we have been working with so many clients on it is there are a lot of perfectly legitimate uses for what you would call malware. People do red teaming and they need to uh, use these tools to see whether their systems are actually proof against intrusion or whether they can uh, detect the intrusion when it goes in. And then when they find somebody in their system, they need to share that malware and the other indications of compromise very quickly, which is also going to be an export of malware. So uh, the Commerce Department, which is trying to get at uses of malware for actually hacking people is faced with a pretty tough job drawing the lines between good uses and bad uses. And that's why they spent all this time and why the rule's so complex. And I guess my question for you is, how good a job did the Commerce Department do? I would say overall, you're absolutely right. They're walking a, a tightrope here. Overall, they did a pretty good job. This rule originally was agreed to in the Wassenaar arrangement, this multilateral group of, of countries that implement export controls. Back in 2013, the Commerce Department realized shortly thereafter that there may be some issues with the scope being overbroad, and they published a, a proposed rule in 2015, and the cybersecurity community and others, too, kind of sprung into action, realizing that the scope 
was way overbroad and would prevent them from being able to quickly exchange technology, software, sometimes even hardware needed to preserve cybersecurity. And the same stuff that is used for malicious purposes can be used for good purposes. And, and the Commerce Department, to its credit, recognized that and really went through a very thorough process, listening to stakeholders, interagency discussions, discussions with the Hill, and ultimately went back to Wassenaar and got the rule changed. Uh, that was a few years ago in 2017, but they still haven't implemented it due to concerns over scope, lingering concerns. And this is, I'd say, overall a very thoughtful effort to try to address those scope concerns. So broadly, it looks to me as though they made it quite clear you're going to need a license if you want to sell dubious software, even for purposes of doing pen testing, to uh, the Russian government, the Chinese government. So there's a lot of governments that uh, you're going to have to explain yourself uh, if you want to uh, send it. Uh, and they also allowed a fair amount of just kind of automatic, go ahead, send it, not a problem. Where, if suppose you were either, suppose you were in the business of just sharing information widely. Is there record keeping? Is there going to be a, a hassle involved in this? Yeah, so, so basically there, there are a lot of carve-outs now that are based on the end use. What are you using it for? And if it's for a vulnerability disclosure or cyber incident response, there are some pretty big exceptions to this rule and you'll be able to export things for the most part without a license. But, and here's one of the, the key catches for industry, the Commerce Department reserves the right to come back and verify that you actually were using the items or technology or software that you were exporting for vulnerability disclosure or cyber incident response. So the, le the lesson here is keep your receipts. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that is one of the biggest things. So companies are going to have to analyze their exports, make sure that everybody's clear on what fits into the okay bucket and what doesn't, and, and then keep track of the exports and make sure that if the Department of Commerce comes knocking at your door, you're able to justify the reasons for your exports. All right. So if you're in this business, and, and I think anybody who has a chief information security officer and some information sharing probably now is going to discover they're in this business. You probably need to figure out what records you need to keep in case you get audited. But probably for most people, other than the folks who really write what amount to attack tools and sell them for legitimate purposes, everybody else is probably just in a record keeping uh, uh, mode. Yeah, that's right. For the most part, those folks shouldn't need to get licenses. And I would suggest that that anybody responsible for this type of thing take a look at the language. There's still an open comment period for the next 45 days. The Commerce Department really wants to make sure it got the scope right this time. They did beef up their technical uh, advisory committees with people who understand this stuff, which is great. So I think this this scope is is much better now. But people should take a look if you've got any concerns. You've got 45 days, well, and counting a little bit less than that now to to respond with input. But but yeah, basically make sure you've got a record keeping procedure set up and and that it works so that you can not end up on the wrong side of the Commerce Department on this. All right, Meredith, thank you very much. And now let's shift gears to content moderation debates, which 
We always have boatloads of. Michael, uh, there's a lot of talk in the, uh, the press these days about right-wing content bias in algorithms against right-wing content for right-wing content. There was a recent study that suggested that the Twitter algorithm actually makes more likely people will see conservative content than just letting them see their their regular news feed in chronological order. That's right. Uh, Twitter released a study last week, and this is a study by their in-house team, finding that their own algorithms amplify right-leaning content more than left-leaning content. And specifically in six out of seven countries, content from right-wing politicians was amplified more than content from left-wing politicians. And then when they looked just at the U.S., right-leaning media was amplified marginally more than than left-leaning media. But the part of this I found the most interesting is that Twitter has no idea why this is happening. I mean, they have access to the algorithms. They look at them, but they say the system-level complexity of the algorithms means that they can't explain the results. And this could just be that the right-wing political parties and media outlets are producing more content that people like to share than the left-leaning counterparts, but without having transparency about what their algorithms are doing, it's it's hard. I thought that was interesting. There, I, I, I had the same question. Well, what's your algorithm designed to do? And it looks as though it's about engagement and uh, whether people read the stuff and things like that, which sound fairly neutral. And if that's the case, then it's probably just that the right-wing content has more people who want to read it, uh, which wouldn't be a surprise because if you want left-wing content, you can read the New York Times. Actually, Stuart, doesn't this fit into your uh, hobby horse of AI bias, you know, black box AI? Yes. I, I don't know if it's engagement. I don't know if it's heat of the moment. I don't know if it is actually some undefined predilection for conservative content that is the product of some un, undeveloped bias. But, you know, as you've been talking about in lots of other contexts, the problem here is really that AI is in this instance, not at all transparent. It's a machine learning algorithm and it learns on its own. And we don't know how it learns what it learns, really. Right. And uh, what we're seeing with a lot of AI bias studies is the next step is, well, we've got to cure the AI bias by sticking little shims into the, the way the algorithm works until it produces the results we want it to produce. So you could easily imagine them saying, we're just going to shim our algorithm until it produces a nicely balanced, that is to say, less right wing set of results. Which appears to be closer to what Facebook did, right? They, as a recent journal reporting, saw that sites like Breitbart were proliferating, you know, more than they preferred, put policy changes in place and suppressed the traffic to Breitbart to reach, essentially reach, reach the desired result. Yeah, this is from the Francis Haugen leaks, and I, I, I think it was a surprise, and not everybody wanted to cover this, but yes, it did show a very aggressive effort by Facebook employees to deplatform Breitbart. Clearly, inside Facebook, the success of conservatives is a, a cause for mourning and horror, and, and they're looking for ways to, to stop it. I agree with you. Uh, that's well, less it's, true it's, for it's, management. It's also a bit, he was a gateway drug to QAnon. I mean, they set up the artificial lady in North Carolina who just followed standard conservative things. And within a week, she's being served QAnon conspiracy. And, you know, so it, it isn't just anti-conservative bias. It, there's a reality that beyond that, on, on that side, there is a belief in... Well, cloud cuckoo land stuff, and well, it, it, look, there's also blue and on stuff that it is not equally in the crazy. Same 
<laughs> not in the Sorry. same. Sorry, we had that. Yeah, we had that discussion before. Yeah. All right. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, bring bring it back to your point, Stuart. Though, like, there's a real danger here that these opaque algorithms and an inability for people to figure out what they're doing. Reverse chronological order isn't looking so bad after all. No, that's uh, actually, I have stumbled into this in my Facebook use. I, there's a very small number of people I follow, and I never have seen a news feed in my life on Facebook. And I'm beginning to think I'm really relieved never to have seen it. So yes, you can with some, every once in a while, every two years, Facebook screws with my kind of crude efforts to maintain this limited uh, window, but I've always been able to restore it. It's actually, I mean... Before we leave this, I think there's a, at least two other points that are worth making. The first is okay. that you know, the comparison of Facebook and Twitter is instructive. From my perspective, the biases in Twitter are much lighter, uh, right? Facebook is the one where people get outliered very much more quickly. And that's kind of the Haugen stuff. But the Isn't other that thing because is, you get to choose who you follow, right? right. If you don't, yeah. if you it, don't it's follow a lot people. More, it's a lot more choice and that just drives the, the conversation. But the other thing that was interesting was that the one one country where the right-wing bias didn't exist in, in the Twitter study was Germany. Yes. And, and I thought that that was obviously a, I mean, they don't know, but it strikes me that that may suggest that some of the reflection is indeed, as we've been talking about, cultural. And in Germany, there's a residual pushback against the traditional conservative groups because of the ties back to the Nazis from 60, 70 years ago. So I thought that was interesting. And just yeah, it could, it could easily be that, that the Germans are actually a lot more comfortable with very middle-of-the-road content. Okay, there was a good story uh, in the Post, David, about NSA's collaboration with the private sector. They've yeah. got this new cybersecurity collaboration center. Uh, Rob Joyce, who's a, a very talented guy, was uh, talking about it at NSA. Uh, I, I wasn't really sure that it amounted to more than everybody's going to get together in the same room and talk to each other. Yeah, the proof will be in the pudding. I agree with you about Rob Joyce. I think he's first class. It's been clear now for a while to people who pay attention that we have got to expand and enhance our public-private partnerships, or at least it's been clear to a number of people for a while. The private sector controls most of the cyber battle space. It has access to information and, frankly, ability to analyze and draw insight from that information that's comparable, if in some ways even maybe superior to that of the, the proliferation of commercially available and acquired information is amazing. And the private sector is less regulated and pays better uh, and has sometimes superior working conditions as compared to the IC, although it obviously has other things that aren't as certainly as the cafeterias are better. The cafeteria and the yeah the slides and the free dry cleaning and all of the things you don't get. I think what we are seeing now, uh, it may be through this story, it may be through other things, and as you say, definitely we have to wait and see for proof. But there does seem to be both on the government side and on the private sector side some more energy and perhaps willingness to actually explore these public-private partnerships, which was something in which the authoritarian regimes just have a net advantage. When you do a net assessment of free governments and authoritarian ones, the uh, the latter are a lot better at whole-of-nation responses just because of how they're set up. And so <laughs> yeah, we're trying it's to... It's automatic. <laughs> it's kind of right. It's pretty easy. So apropos of the earlier conversation about Putin and his uh, quasi-private, quasi-public cyber actors, we have obviously a fractious, uh, messy, capitalist-free system with... And so there's challenges in bridging the gap and creating collective action. I think there have been some efforts and, as I say, some renewed energy that's visible there. 
I, I think maybe it's certainly partly because Ann Neuberger and Chris Inglis and Jen Easterly are making real efforts and, and expanding their outreach. I think it's also shown on the company side because the environment has changed. The proliferation of ransomware and other cyber attacks, I think, are starting to get into people's heads and make them realize we've got to do something about this or something worse will follow in the form of possibly heavy-handed regulation or in the form of really awful attacks that are successful in knocking out things. And so I, I guess I think the conditions on the ground, or at least the perception of those conditions have changed. And you are seeing incremental efforts from both the government and the private sector side that reflect that. But it will take some time for the proof to be that they have really succeeded. And I expect the usual challenges around information sharing and cooperation will rear their heads as the process unfolds. So, yes, it, a TBD is probably the best we can say about uh, the CCC. Okay. okay. So one of the challenges to the idea that we should have this global internet is the EU's um, campaign to restrict exports of data from Europe to the U.S. because the U.S. doesn't meet the privacy and civil liberty standards that the EU Court of Justice has established. The EU Court of Justice struck down the, the main basis on which the data has been moved uh, a year and a half ago uh, or more. And there's been desultory negotiations to try to come up with a substitute that will at least plausibly address what the court objected to in U.S. law. Paul, how are those negotiations going? We're starting to see a few leaks. So tired. I'm so tired of negotiating with you. I'm sorry. Yeah, I love Europe, right? I love to travel there. I'm going. I can't wait to be able to go back post-COVID, but... You think but, they're going to let you in after what you just said? Oh, yeah, they love me there. <laughs> Look, the intragovernmental negotiations will proceed apace, but they are irrelevant. They are irrelevant because there is nothing, and I mean that literally, nothing that the United States can do short of becoming Europe that will satisfy the European Court of Justice. In some ways, I wonder if it's worth even trying. I mean, you said it yourself, Stuart, we're a year and a half out and nothing's actually adversely happened that much to the commercial realm. So to some degree, I, I sort of think that this entire exercise is proving the ultimate inefficaciousness of the European Commission and the European Court of Justice, which keep issuing decisions about how bad America is and don't change a thing. But if I were on the American side and, and President Biden were listening to me, I would say, don't waste a minute on this. Just don't waste huh. a minute on it. Well, and worse than wasting time, we might actually like start making some changes well, well, that well, could, could screw something up. That, that, that is, that's what I fear. Is, right? you, uh, you, you actually break something in the, in the process of uh, trying to appease the Europeans, which you'll never do. You guys yeah. are so, so there is no There's no consensus yeah. to, to accommodate the Europeans. I'm willing to... Uh, David, are you willing to make it a consensus that, 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 it's, that no, we're wasting our time with no. these guys? Put me firmly in the camp of small-minded incrementalist efforts to try to find the middle course. Doomed to failure, no doubt, but still worthy... Of good effort. We've seen how hard it is, even come from the US side with the Cloud Act, just how hard it is to get these international agreements in. And it's super frustrating and, and awful and miserable across the board. No question about it. I can't disagree with Paul. But I guess I think, and again, this may be small minded and, and petty of me, I, I think there may be a way to sort of put some kind of ombudsman on steroids that will allow 
some kind of redress mechanism. I don't think they're going to get into U.S. courts because we've got standing rules that sort of make that hard to do. But maybe there's a way to sort of fig leaf something that will not actually create problems the way Michael was talking about that is not hamstring the intelligence community. They're not going to just make a law to occupy the space currently regulated by 12333. They're not going to repeal the FISA Amendments Act 702. So some of that is, but maybe there's something that can be done. And maybe with enough pressure, the ECJ will say, all right, good enough. I, I know that sounds naive and stupid, but I just thought I should put it no, out no, there as I, at least I, a possibility that we kind of finesse our way past this. I think I would I would put up put a a slightly more cynical point on that, but I I kind of agree with you on that. What a surprise that you would be more cynical, (laughs) Stuart. I I I feel like I need to sit down. So and look, we're 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 negotiating with the continent that invented hypocrisy. Come on, so we ought to try some hypocrisy. We should say yes, we'll give you this and give them some something that is better than the last time, but maybe nothing like exactly what the court had in mind, and put it in place, and then the, let Shrems spend another three years trying to litigate that one. And when we lose that one, we'll go back and fight again. There's nobody in Europe that actually wants to cut off data exports. Right. Yeah. And they want our CT assistance, among other things. Yeah. They sort of rely on our help. So there's a split yeah. across the pond. Well, you know, Stuart, I mean, that's just wonderful. The perpetual uh, put, kicking the can down the road. You're right that they're hypocrites. And maybe the right way to do it is just be hypocrites back. But see, America's one strength in, in international law is we actually do what we say we're going to do. Mostly. Yeah. Most. We should stop that. <laughs> well, no. I mean, I think that's what makes us actually uh, great. <laughs> you know, to, to steal a phrase, we we do what we say we're going to okay. do. Maybe just well, an exception here. <laughs> well, well, if I understand Stuart's proposal correctly, we would do what we say we're going to do. What we would say we're going to do, though, is just not very much. Right? Right? Yeah. Maybe. Well, yes, and and, 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 right. and and if we were transparently saying we're going to do this so that the ECJ has another has another bite of the apple in three years. And then after that, we're going to do three more and three more and three more. Yeah, okay, I'll do that. <laughs> Our official policy is delay and deferred. I did have a question about the substance of the proposal. If I'm reading the press reporting about what it is we offer the Europeans, it, it, it was described as a system of independent judges housed in ODNI. Sounds like an abysmal idea. If I guess it depends what they mean by independent judges. I mean, there would certainly be like a lot of separation of powers problems if you're talking about having Article Three judges inside of ODNI. I assume that maybe you're talking about something this else. This is, I think, what I meant by bad press shorthand. When yeah. I referred to ombudsman on steroids, it's some kind of executive yeah, well, solution. I mean, we've, we've, right. If we've got an ombudsman at the State Department, it's just talking about moving that guy to ODNI. Fine. Let's see if it makes the Europeans happy. But, you know, let's not call him an independent judge. Well, that, that, but that's what they want it to be. Well, yes, but he's still would say yes. Let's call him an independent judge, even if he isn't. Right there, we go. <laughs> that's Stewart's. Yeah. That's Stewart's yeah. pitch. Well, that that is exactly what I mean. We just had a, a series of cases about the impossibility of having completely independent judicial administrative judges inside an executive agency. So, even if we call them independent, they're not going to actually be independent because they will ultimately serve at the pleasure of the DNI. That, that's mandatory under the most recent yep. iterations of Supreme Court separations of power law. And we're not- I don't know, it, let me ask David, you know more about 702 and the, the, the process of saying, having the FISA court say, yes, these procedures meet the requirements of law. 
Would it be possible in the 702 context to issue orders that say, and the, the FISA court will also play a role in deciding the legality going forward of this based on things like the number of uh, Europeans whose uh, data has been scarfed up? I don't know about that last. They do do post-tasking reviews on selectors, which is a kind of an audit, and that's public. Whether you could tweak that so that it scratched the itch of GDPR, maybe. Whether you could get the FISA court to then buy into saying, and we're going to issue some kind of order on top of that based on a report of the executive branch concerning its tasking reviews, the court might or might not be willing to wade into that. And the But the big problem, I think, is that that's 702. There's really not a way to do that, as far as I can tell, in the same fashion for 12333, which is a big part of the Europeans' concern. It's a much bigger lift, a much taller tree to be barking up to bring 12333 under judicial review. Oh, in two, and bringing 12, tri- 12333 so, is basically so. all the espionage we do around the world. So, uh, the so. Europeans don't have to send their data to, to the United States for us to steal it right, right out from under them in France. But I think the GDPR theory in full flower embraces both 702 and 12333. And I think that is why you are seeing a move towards an executive ombudsman as opposed to a judicial one, just again, because of standing doctrine and other limitations of judicial review in the US. And frankly, by the way, and I think I'm not an expert, but I think in a lot of European countries have very similar, if not more stringent limitations. And of course, they're not nearly as transparent about their uh, intelligence surveillance regimes. Not that that matters because of the way GDPR is written and administered technically, but I do think you might see an ombudsman type of thing. You might call it some kind of a judge DNI, and maybe that'll be good enough in real life. Maybe it'll be enough of an excuse to give the ECJ an off-ramp if it wants that. You can look at it in a couple different ways, but it does seem like that's where it's trending. And so the conversation about 702 in the court, I think, is unlikely to occur just because it doesn't actually answer the mail on everything. Yeah, I, I would still fear that we move the ombudsman to ODNI, give him some additional powers, maybe they throw in four cause removal or something like that to try to as- assuage concerns about independence. And then this person is uh, a real impediment that there's you know lots of additional bureaucratic red tape that, that then without adding a lot of additional civil liberties protections, just uh, slowing down the, the process. And then in three years, you still have Otto Schrems come back sue again, and it's still insufficient, right? We we might end up with the worst of both worlds. So how about this? How about we say, because under the WTO, this has got to be non-discriminatory and non-arbitrary. And we say, you have, as far as we can tell, there's never been any litigation or judgments against China, which probably doesn't meet European human rights standards if we don't. So if we agree to this, you'll give us adequacy for what we've done. And you will agree that all future cases involving transfers to the United States will be titrated at a rate of one for every four cases against Chinese companies. And we'll just keep going and, and see how that works out for them. Somebody call Tony Blinken and, and we'll have Stuart as a roving ambassador of goodwill on GDPR. Um, <laughs> yes, um, exactly. They'll, they'll have me roving for sure, probably in Iceland. Okay. I, uh, the last thing that I think we wanted to talk about here, because we have sort of been talking about it, is uh, this Ian Bremmer article in Foreign Affairs in which he claims that 
big tech is reshaping the global order because now we have a kind of trilateral, well, sorry, we have we have a world in which big tech companies are almost like states. And he lays out this vision of three different visions of the world that companies have. Either there's a national champion world in which uh, the companies are subject to some national jurisdiction, or there's a kind of crypto, a, a utopian vision of uh, the world in which the companies and their open global network dominate over governments. And then I guess if I'm reading this right, a kind of middle ground, I thought it was a pretty good article two years ago, and it really doesn't make much sense anymore. That that he he did not have as strong a case today as he might have seemed to have two years ago. David, are you more impressed by his uh, reference to how the global order ought to run when big tech companies are enormously powerful? Well, I don't know how it ought to run. I think I'm maybe a tick less skeptical than you are about this. I think there is something going on here. For sure, to say up front, and I, much as it pains me to agree with you in part, I do think all of this can be exaggerated and turned into some kind of neato science fiction type story, whether utopian or dystopian, depending on your preferences. But I, as I say, I do think there is a little bit of a thing here. And it does, I think, follow logically from some of the stuff we were just discussing. I mean, I talked earlier about uh, Russian censorship and the role of US platforms for encouraging free speech there. And I did make this triangular frame. And then we talked about NSA encouraging pub public-private partnerships for cyber defense, which I think is clearly got some truth to it and some legs, depending on how things go. We'll see whether it really makes a difference or not. And so I do think the private sector's capacities and responsibilities or perceived responsibilities have in a way, made them more significant players. I mean, I'm also not an historian, and so I know there are historical parallels of U.S. corps like fruit companies and oil companies and defense companies exerting profound influence. Whether or not this is some kind of paradigm shift or whether it's just an incremental chain or a, a periodic ebb and flow, I do think it is worth paying attention to them on the geopolitical stage. And, you know, there are pros and cons. Again, regardless of your political pers pers perspective, there are pros and cons with Delaware Corps and their CEOs embracing more than profit maximization. I mean, we yeah. could take a referendum on Howard Schultz, the former CEO of Starbucks, and I bet even within yeah. the four of us and maybe across the audience, you'd get thumbs up, thumbs down for this, that, or the other thing that, that he's done. But it's, it is, I think, a different way of looking at these corps. And I think... The U.S. intelligence community and I think other players on the world stage are going to adapt to this. I don't know how. I think it's all going to be potentially very interesting. But I do think there is something going on here that is worthy of attention and continued study. I know I'm going to pay attention to it. And I was intrigued by the article to that extent. I agree with you. There's something going on here. I thought Ian worked overtime to try to fit it into a global geopolitics framework. And to, he overstated the power of companies at a time when China and the US and Russia are all showing just how limited their power is. That doesn't mean, though, that they, they don't have to be taken into account. And if there's a model for how they have to be taken into account, I would offer Rupert Murdoch 
who used his media domination to make himself a political force wherever he had yeah. substantial media yeah. properties. And he did it by playing favorites and very obviously playing favorites. And I would not be at all surprised to discover that in the long run, the most cynical use of authority by, by the big tech companies is going to be part of our, our world by about 2030. All right. I'll be back on the Cyberlaw podcast <laughs> at that time to check in on. <laughs> Hell, you may you, you may inherit it. <laughs> Hope I'm still alive. <laughs> okay, I, we've all received permission from our big tech overlords. Exactly. By the way. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. First, they they have to throttle distribution of the Cyberlaw podcast, which I think will not be all that hard. Okay, two or three quick hits. Francis Haugen, who's been leaking a lot of stuff and getting just an enthusiastic press, suddenly hit a roadblock when she said, oh, there's terrible things about Facebook. They're ignoring this bad thing about their, their technology and that bad thing about their technology. And then she said, and then, then there's that other bad thing. They're going to have end-to-end encryption so they don't have to even pay attention to cyber espionage. And everybody said, wait a minute, you can't say that. So I don't know, uh, you know, there wasn't much coverage and I bet there won't be much coverage, but she has apparently, she has pointed out that if you don't like Facebook and you don't like WhatsApp running your life, it may be that you be, should be more cynical about their end-to-end encryption decisions than uh, people doesn't have Doesn't that make her your hero now. though, Stuart? I mean, I, it, it doesn't. I mean, you know, I mean, you, know, you, you haven't been on her side, but now she, here she is, she's finally saying something that you agree with, right? Yeah, I, well, I, I think it's ironic. I'll, I'll stick with uh, ironic at this point. All right, and I know, Paul, you've been dying to talk about this. Trump and truth are together at last. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, well, uh, look, I, I, I think it was an inevitable result, right? There have been three or four other efforts to get uh, conservative-themed social media platforms up and off the ground. So far, none of them have been a great success, Uh, mostly because the main social media conservative star of this generation hadn't been a part. So now he's going to be a part, or at least he says he's going to be a part. You know, it remains, I think, to be seen whether this thing gets off the ground, and if so, in what shape or form. He's not good on follow-through. I I actually think it's sort of, dare I say, brilliant. He's enriched, he, uh, the, the SPAC that they for, that he partnered with quadrupled in value overnight just because he put his name to it, which is his marketing genius. He, his name for a subset of American culture is gold. And if he can convert that gold, that, you know, that figurative gold into real gold, then he's, he's, he's doing well. The, the initial beta of it or immediately got defaced by pranksters. So so we know it's not exactly ready for prime time. There's a guy who ran a company called Mastodon who says it's really just a knockoff of his. So so there's at least one lawsuit ahead of them. But uh, yeah, but actually, it, it's interesting that the, the, the lawsuit is not that he ripped it off. That, I, I thought that, that was a bad take. I, this is an open source product. There's the Nothing, as far as I can tell, would stop Truth from using the code. It's just that they then have to make any uh, improvements in it available as open source code as well. I, that I, They'll be able to get around that. Yeah, they... but I think if you think in 2030, we're going to all be subservient to our big tech overlords, I feel comfortable in predicting that Truth will not be one of them. 
Yeah, I, I, I think that's unanimous. All right, last story I just cannot resist uh, because it comes, it sneaks up on one of my favorite topics, Hackback, and shows that Hackback is not dead. Two very different congressmen or senators, Steve Daines and Sheldon Whitehouse, have demanded that uh, passed introduced a law to require the Justice Department to reconsider whether there is a basis for allowing the private sector to do more when under attack by hackers. And uh, the Wall Street Journal article about this also picks up on a um, cybersecurity company redacted that says it's doing a kind of hack back investigation without actually doing counterattacks, which essentially consists of tricking hackers into giving consent to see what uh, the products they have for sale in the dark market. And once you've, they've given consent, you go in and move laterally through their network and find all of their uh, personal data. I thought that was kind of clever because it's just enough consent that the Justice Department probably won't prosecute you. So Hackback, not quite dead yet. All right. That's it for today. Thanks to Meredith. Thanks to Michael, Paul, and David for joining us. If you want to leave us remarks, cyberlawpodcast at stepto.com, or leave us a review, and I will read it if it's at all entertaining. You only have to be more entertaining than the rest of the program, so it's not a high bar. And thanks also to Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 380 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Mm-hmm.